Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. My name is Ruin. My name is Heartbreak. Oh, well, that surprised me. <laughs> I am the god of hellfire. <laughs> Still? Yes. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I am wonderful on this very pleasant uh, spring evening. It is very pleasant indeed. Lovely, lovely stuff. Yeah, spring is very much springing. Sun not been too bright for your, let's say, pale complexion just yet? Well, I, d- I did have the factor 50 on today. <laughs> Or clothes, as other people call them. <laughs> no, because uh, the sun was out for about two minutes. Being a, a male from the north of England, that immediately means shorts are on. Yeah. But being a ginge, it also means Factor 50 is <laughs> is on because I've been burned in this country on a grey day in winter. <laughs> Not just a hair colour, but a way of life. We have no souls. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Album Clash, everyone. We are continuing our Album Clash Goes to the Movies season. Kev, your choice. So what is our clash? So our clash is uh, this week we will be doing Talking Heads' uh, Stop Making Sense. And next week we will be doing Rattle and Hum by U2. And essentially the link between the two is they're both iconic concert movies of the of the 80s. Now the the U2 Rattle and Hum, it's a part concert movie, part I hate the phrase rockumentary, but you know, <laughs> that's what it is. Well, unlike many rockumentaries, the band don't come out of it looking all that cool. No. <laughs> but we'll we will delve into that next week. We will indeed. Uh, I have another couple of uh, small connections, if I may. Yeah, sure. So both albums are named after lyrics from one of the songs that is performed live and appears on the respective albums. Mm-hmm. And uh, something that you may have found in your research and people may be aware of, the director of Stop Making Sense was approached to direct Rattle and Hum. Indeed he was. Uh, yeah, but really it's uh, concert movies and um, a really good choice. Yeah, I'm um, looking forward to this one. It was um, it was a pleasure to research, un- unlike some other ones we've done recently. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still going on about it? Yeah, I am. It, honestly, <laughs> it it was it was like torture. <laughs> Speaking of torture, do you have any shit you can't get out of your head? I do. So previously on the clash, we have spoken about Wordle. Yes. And it's very successful. I do it. I know you do. But there have been other spin-offs that other people have created, one of which is Hurdle. Yes. Which is essentially playing the intro to a song. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this week, one of the choices was uh, Numb by Linkin Park. Oh, no. Yeah, which oh, was not good and did get in my head, unfortunately. Youch. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Hurdle. <laughs> uh, so I have earwormed myself again. <laughs> oh, dear. 
through researching this clash. Uh, my shite is the dreadful mid-90s R&B song Return of the Mac by Mark Morrison. Return of the Mac. That's the one. <laughs> I'll explain a little bit later on today why I earwormed myself with it, but fucking hell, like it was, it was bad enough first time around, but it must have been released about a thousand times between '96 and '99, <laughs> although still not as many times as "You Got to Be" by Desiree, which was released so many times you ended up getting it in fucking bags of cornflakes and stuff. Oh wow, I, I'd not thought about that song for a long, long time, and I'm not going to again. Because it'll probably earworm me. Exactly. I've now got two shite songs stuck in my head. Uh, but yeah, I'll explain why Return of the Mac is stuck in my head a little bit later on. Okay, so for my good one, I do you know, like, I'd love to say that I've got something brand new to bring to the table and I have a very clever explanation, but we've discussed before on Album Clash that me and Sam have a tendency to make up stupid songs. <laughs> Yes. To the tunes of things, because we're idiots. Nothing's topped my Tajin Genie, though. That's still the best one either of us has done so far. Well, we'll see. Um, <laughs> Go on, sorry. So this week, Sam, as she regularly does, lost her phone and was asking me where where it was. And I did notice, I did find where it was, and it was under my posterior. <laughs> okay. Which then led to me breaking into song, singing, It's under my bum. <laughs> First entry into Album Clash for the Rolling Stones. Indeed. So, yes, I have had Under My Thumb by the Rolling Stones stuck in my head all week. And I have and I have also been singing Under My Bomb. Excellent. Fair play to you. Well done. Uh, mine is nowhere near as childish. Um, and mine is brand new. And I thought you were going to pick this. So I'm really pleased you haven't. Uh, because it means I get to talk about new Arcade Fire material. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it is really good. So, yeah. Last week, as we record, they debuted the new song, The Lightning, parts one and two. It's from their forthcoming album, We. I mean, I think we've spoken about Arcade Fire once or twice in the past. Yeah, we've shown, I think we might have shown our hand that we think that they're not bad. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're one of my favourite bands, and I I think you kind of feel the same as well. Oh, yeah. I get very excited when new Arcade Fire stuff comes along. This is no different. So it's their first new stuff for five years since everything now came out in 2017. It's very much a return to what I would call the classic Arcade Fire sound of the first two or three albums. Mm, Very much so. So uh, apparently also uh, it was announced shortly after that Will Butler, brother of uh, lead singer and songwriter Wynn, has now departed the band. Uh, Apparently it's an amicable departure. I mean, you'd hope so. He's your brother. Um, Noel and Liam, take note. (laughs) Uh, He does play on the album, so since the album was finished, he has left. But yeah, they are one member down. I mean, to be fair, you know, Will Butler is a a great musician and everything. They've got quite a few members. I mean, we're not talking polyphonic screen, (laughs) but you know. Or Wu-Tang Clan. (laughs) They have got a fair rolling cast of people, so you know. I think they'll be able to cover for him in the live shows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great, though. But as we always say, we will tweet out the links to those tracks and add them to our Can't Get You Out of My Head playlists on the uh, not quite so benevolent YouTube music and the Evil Empire Spotify. Now sponsoring a stadium. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, check them out and um, hope you enjoy. Yeah. 
Uh, should we do some top trumps? I think we should. So I won last time with Pulp Fiction. Uh, I am not at all confident today. No, I don't think you should be. But let's see how we go. All right, I'm just going to go with the first one. So stop making sense. I mean, very healthy sales of two and a half million copies, but... Yeah, um, Rattle & Hum sold 14 million. <laughs> yeah, you have tanned my hide there. Off you go. A little bit. So charts, number one in both the UK and the US. Um, no, number 24 in the UK, number 41 in the US. Really? Yeah. Surprising. Well, that's a surprise. Their success, both sides of the Atlantic at the time, was not as much as you might have thought. They have very much become rev- more revered in the years since they stopped recording mm-hmm. than they were at the time. Okay. So, I will go with lists. Yeah, okay. Rollin Hum doesn't make any best of lists. Oh, wow. I mean, again, not giving too much away for next week. I'm not overly surprised. No. <laughs> so, Stop Making Sense very much does make some lists. So, in 2003 and 2012, Rolling Stone listed it at number 345 in their top 500 albums list. It, however, did not make the list at all in 2020, which is a surprise. Uh, and in 2012, Slant Magazine named Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads as the 61st best album of the 1980s. So, I have very much pulled one back. You have. Can you bring parity to the uh, occasion? Aye. I'll do, well, let's do some awards. All right. In 1985, uh, they were nominated for an MTV Video Music Award for the best stage performance for the live performance on Once in a Lifetime that appears on this soundtrack. In 1986, they were nominated for a Brit for Best International Group. And in 1985, the film won Best Documentary at the National Society of Film Critics Awards. So, a little bit there. Okay, so this did very well in awards. You two won the Best International Group at the 89 Brits, won uh, Best Rock Performance at the 89 Grammys for Desire, and won a VMA for Best Video from a Film, which was for When Love Comes to Town. Oh, shit. Okay, that puts you 3-1 up. I cannot win today. The best I can do is a draw, and I ain't getting a draw. <laughs> well, you ain't getting a draw because I'm going to do certifications, oh, and we've already established that. <laughs> exactly. Go on, then. Five times platinum in the US, four times platinum in the UK, Australia and Canada, seven times platinum. Wow. And in loads of other territories, um, lots of silver and gold. Ah, bollocks. Which is ironic, because there is literally a song called Silver and Gold on Rattle. <laughs> I know, that's why I um, I put it in there <laughs> as, a, as a clever little uh, nugget there. And so you've won uh, by a distance there. Although, stop making sense. Again, it's very respectable. Twice platinum in the US, platinum in New Zealand, and gold in Germany and the UK. So, you know, it's done all right for itself. But, yeah, you have... Well, you've won. Let's uh, let's see how I can do on the critic scores. Can I claw back some respectability? Okay. All music, three out of five. Ooh, three and a half out of five. Ooh. Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. three and a half out of five. Ooh, four out of five. This is going to have to be a significantly better score. NME, eight out of ten. I don't have NME, but Q gave it five out of five. So... 
So that's definitely a, a victory to Talking Heads. Yeah, and again, not overly surprising. No, as we will definitely get into this week and very much next week. Yep. But yeah, well done. You won for two. So uh, congratulations, Rattle and Hum. Let's see if you win the real award on this clash. We, we shall see. We'll find out next week about that. However, this week, should I start taking us through Talking Heads Stop Making Sense? I believe you should. Right, okay. Stop Making Sense is the sixth album released by Talking Heads, released on the 12th of September 1984 on Sire and Warner Brothers Records. It was recorded in three performances over four nights in December 1983 at the Pantages Theatre in Los Angeles. The record is produced by Talking Heads and Gary Goatsman. The film was released on the 24th of April 1984, directed by Jonathan DeMay. And it made $5.1 million at the box office against a budget of only $1.2 million. So, you know, it very much gave the studio a return on its investment. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose we can talk about this when we get to the legacy. Is It very much opened the door for mm-hmm. other similar films, including an earlier one by the other band in this clash. Yeah, very, very much so. So the idea for it came from Jonathan DeMay himself. So there's a couple of interviews that I'm going to talk about a lot. I obviously got loads of quotes. Both of them were in 2014, which is the 30th anniversary of the release of the film. So one of them was an interview that Jonathan DeMay and David Byrne gave to Time magazine. The other one is an interview that Chris France, who's the drummer from Talking Heads, gave to Rolling Stone. So, firstly, Jonathan DeMay and David Byrne said to Time magazine, In early 1983, Gary Goatsman and I went to see my favourite band, The Talking Heads, this is Jonathan DeMay talking, at the Hollywood Bowl in LA. The show was like seeing a movie just waiting to be filmed. We tracked David Byrne down and pitched him the idea of teaming up to make the picture. David really saw this movie in his own head long before we came and pitched him on getting us to shoot it. David Byrne said, I realised the show was cinematic and that it sort of had a narrative arc. It might work on film, or so I believed. Chris France recalled it quite similarly, but with some subtle difference. Uh, And that's going to be a little bit of a theme going forward, around some differences between what Chris France and David Byrne say. But (laughs) we'll get into that. (laughs) Uh, So he said, we were all thinking it would be good to document that particular tour. Right when we were about to get on the road, Jonathan DeMay came to one of our shows with his girlfriend at the time, Sandy McLeod, so not Gary Goatsman, and Jonathan said, we'd like to make a movie of this. And we thought, how nice. So the decision was made to make the film uh, over the course of those three shows during the tour to promote the Speaking in Tongues album, which had been released in 1983, just the year before. The film was financed by Talking Heads themselves. David Byrne said in Time magazine, our manager, the late Gary Kerfist, went to Warner Brothers for a loan. They got paid back and sold some live albums too. Chris France said, one thing nobody ever mentions, particularly our singer David Byrne, is the fact the band paid for the movie. Well, he just did mention it, but okay. Yes, we got a loan from Warner Brothers, but it was against our royalties, so the band, the four of us, really coughed up the money. Yeah, um, I think there might be an undercurrent there. I can't, I can't really pick up. You know that I'm just picking something. I don't know. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So to prepare for the filming, depending on who you listen to, again, I'm not going to read all the quotes for it, but Jonathan Demay and or Sandy McLeod followed the band on tour for a week and or a month. 
to understand the show, to understand how each of the band members move, what they were doing at a particular point in the show, etc. But it's important to know that this wasn't something that was specifically choreographed for the film. It was basically Jonathan Demay wanted and the band wanted to be shot doing what they'd been doing throughout the tour. It was it, it is a snapshot of the tour of that moment in time. Yeah, he, essentially he went along to work out where his cameras needed to be positioned in order to accurately reflect what a talking head show was like on that tour. Absolutely. And whilst on the subject of where the cameras needed to be permissioned, the reason they did it over a few nights rather than all in one night is because DeMay wanted to minimise the number of cameras that were on stage so as not to interfere with the performance. So on one night, they shot the concert entirely from one side of the stage. Then the following night, they shot the concert from the other side of the stage. And then the final night, it was all shot from the back of the auditorium to give us all the long shots that you see in the film. Well, I mean, I, I perfectly understand that because, I mean, obviously you've got the whole thing of the act of observing something um, can inherently change it. And particularly if a camera is right. Wow, up in... we are getting into Heisenberg's uncertainty principle on album clash. Indeed. We'll go back to referencing, you know, some shit 80s. Ever decreasing circles. <laughs> there we go. Do you know what? I was going to go for sorry um, with Ro- <laughs> Ronnie Corbett. I fucking hate that show. What was his character's name? Was it Timothy? It was Timothy. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah, so the like obviously if, if there's loads of cameras knocking about, then that's gonna change the fundamental dynamic of the live performance. So yep. the least intrusive way that you can film it, obviously the better reflection it's gonna have. And I think they definitely achieve that, but we'll get to that. So yeah, after shooting the three nights, Jonathan DeMay then then went and edited together to appear as a seamless performance. There are one or two minor continuity errors for people that want to nitpick, like me. <laughs> so, during the last part of Genius of Love, you see Tina Weymouth dancing, but the audio is clearly playing while she's doing slides on her bass, which does not match up with what you see on the video. But anyway, the film and the album was the first to use uh, 24-track digital recording techniques and that makes the soundtrack sound really, really crisp. And if you have seen the film, and as I did, I watched it on Amazon Prime and I had headphones on, there are some fantastic surround sound effects when the cameras are shifting between various positions, so is the sound. It's great. Yeah, it just as a document of talking heads in their pomp, it is a absolutely brilliant film. It's it's really good i can't anyway well yeah we'll we'll get into that if you haven't seen it and if you're in the uk and you subscribe to amazon prime you can watch it as part of your prime subscription for no extra cost and i would recommend you do so yes so the last thing i need to talk about on background is and i do need to talk about it to promote the film you may have seen this david byrne recorded a mock interview where he sat in his massive suit, which we'll come on to, obviously, being interviewed by a cast of characters, all of whom are played by Byrne himself. Byrne, as Byrne in the massive suit, just provides deadpan answers to every question. And it is quite funny, to be honest with you. 
I don't know if you've seen it at all, Kev. I don't think I have, you know. Okay, so the reason I need to talk about it is, unfortunately, one of the interviewers that he portrayed was an African-American character. And so, yeah, David Byrne blacked himself up for the role, which isn't great at all. (laughs) No, that's shit. In fairness to David Byrne, he did acknowledge that in 2020, and he tweeted his regret and an apology for the incident, saying to watch myself in the various characters, including black and brown face, because I think there's also a Hispanic character as well. I acknowledge it was a major mistake in judgment that showed a lack of understanding. It's like looking in a mirror and seeing someone else. You're not or were not the person you thought you were. So he's shown contrition for it. And he certainly wasn't the only person at that time doing that sort of thing. But I felt I needed to draw some attention to it and say that it's a bit of a regrettable incident. Yeah, I would probably go stronger than regrettable in fucking <laughs> yeah, okay. idiotic. But you Well, know. yes. No, very, very much so. And I say it is a shame because the, the vignettes themselves, they are quite funny in the questions it gets asked and the way that... David Byrne in the massive suit answers them. It's quite funny, but it's just... Yeah, no. But anyway, that's me on background. Anything else from you? No, nothing else. All right then, Kev, how did you first discover Stop Making Sense? So it was about sort of 15 years ago that um, someone on you just said to us, you'll like this, and just passed me a copy of the album before I'd seen the film or anything. And I I listened to it and I thought... well, we'll get into what I think about the album. So subsequently, I then watched the film and everything and thought it was it was amazing. So yeah, that's, that's how I came across it. Okay. How about yourself? First listen and first watch. Okay. So I like Talking Heads a lot. We've mentioned that previously. Uh, I think Remain in Light is fantastic, as is Little Creatures, the album that they released following Stop Making Sense. Uh, but I'd never got round to either listening to this album or to watching the film uh, until now. So, yeah, a first listen for me. Grand. All right, then, artwork. And as was the case on both of our previous soundtrack albums, the artwork is also the poster that was put out to promote the movie. And, Kev, what is it? <laughs> it's David Byrne's massive suit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's it, basically. (laughs) So I just want to read what David Byrne said as the inspiration for the suit. I was in Japan in between tours and I was checking out traditional Japanese theatre, Kabuki, No and Bunraku, and I was wondering what to wear on our upcoming tour. A fashion designer friend said in his typically droll manner, well, David, everything's bigger on stage. He was referring to jesters and all that, but I applied the idea to a businessman's suit. Boy, he did. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. He further explained in that mock interview, I wanted my head to appear smaller, and the easiest way to do that was to make my body bigger, because music is very physical, and often the body understands it before the head. I mean, if you think of David Byrne, it's strange I'd never seen the film before, because I didn't know exactly this is where it came from, but if you think of David Byrne, you think of that massive suit. You do. It is synonymously linked with him. Mm. Some nice font work too, I would say, on this. It's a good font. I like mm. I like the font on, on the album. 
Although it does sort of remind me of the font which adorns the opening credits to the first Men in Black film, which I found a little bit off-putting. But anyway, that's just me. No, but I'm okay with because the first Men in Black film was all right. Yeah, okay. Subsequent fine. films, much less so. Yes. <laughs> yeah, fine. Yeah, it's uh, as I say, there is nothing to the album cover other than a picture of David Byrne's massive suit and the words talking heads stop making sense it does exactly what what you need for a cover really tells you all <laughs> you, you need to know and has a picture of a massive suit more massive suits please do you think um that he actually you know he's given a very david byrne answer to it but he actually bought it from yokozuna <laughs> Now, I assume you're referring to the wrestler Yokozuna. <laughs> yes. Who was not actually Japanese. He, he was not actually Japanese, but obviously portrayed himself as Japanese. <laughs> Mr. Fuji sold it to <laughs> uh, Brilliant. Well done. Excellent stuff. <laughs> okay. All right. Should we, should we get on to the, to the songs and that? You didn't, you didn't see uh, Yokozuna <laughs> no, chat coming I in. I didn't. That's excellent. <laughs> um, yeah, let's get into it. Right. Okay. Start with Psycho Killer. So this was originally included on their debut album, Talking Heads 77, released in 1977. The original single release reached number 92 on the Hot 100 in the States. Can you believe it charted so low? Well, a debut single, and it's a big old market in the States. So I know what you're saying with the benefit of hindsight, but to be fair to them... I would imagine in 1977, getting to 92 with their first single, they were thinking, oh, sound. Oh, yeah, like I'm, you know, with my zero um, Hot 100 um, <laughs> appearances, I don't think I'm in a position to have a pop. <laughs> that's fair. But, yeah, like just for a song that's so good, like yeah. it, it's just surprising that it didn't chart higher, really. No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Uh, so, this version is very different from the original version, because this one is performed solo by David Byrne. If you see the film, you'll know, and he takes to the stage, he says, hi, I've got a tape I want to play. He puts a boombox on the floor, presses play, and then there's a drum beat kicks in, which is actually from a Roland 808 drum machine, not from the boombox. And he plays the song along to that beat on an acoustic guitar. And at this point, he is the only person on the stage. Mm-hmm. One by one, over the course of the next few songs, he is joined by other members of the group. Chris France explained that. He said this was all decided before the tour began. It was a little bit of a revision of what really happened in real life. I think what David would like to convey is that it began with David Byrne, <laughs> and he invited Tina to join the band, and then he invited Chris, and then he invited Jerry, and then he invited Steve Scales, and so on and so forth. But it wasn't like that. <laughs> what really happened was Tina, David, and I moved to New York with the idea that we might start a band. I convinced David that it was a good idea. I asked Tina to join the band, and I asked Jerry Harrison to join the band. So it's a little bit of revision, but it works really well as a narrative for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, I had the last laugh. <laughs> well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. What is the American equivalent of driving to Dundee uh, without your shoes on eating Toblerone? <laughs> driving to Maine. In one of those caps with a net back, eating beef jerky. I'm sorry to our American listeners. I've just insulted every single one of you. I like beef jerky, by the way. 
I was gonna I was gonna go with Ohio. <laughs> it seems a very Ohio thing. Uh, sorry, listen, isn't Ohio? Are we wrong? Is it like Dundee? Um, <laughs> the Granite City. Uh, that's Aberdeen. Is it? Yeah. I thought, it's a I thought that was the oil city. Coast of Scotland. No. Mm, okay. The Granite City. Because it's fucking Aberdeen. The whole thing's made of granite. <sighs> Dundee uh, <laughs> drugs, basically. <laughs> <laughs> drugs and obesity. We established in the previous week that that was Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. So that's our listeners in Scotland. I don't think we've got very many, to be fair, and we certainly ain't now. <laughs> Back to Psycho Killer. What do you think of the performance? I think it's great. I mean, I I absolutely adore the original. So you're pushing against an open door, but that that kind of much more relaxed, less frenetic sound works really well, and it, it being stripped back. I like the 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 Rollins playing, even though the drumming in the original great. Um, I just think it it works really well as an opener. It does. So so I agree. I like live versions that try to do something different with the source material with the original song. Not that playing a live version just as it's recorded is bad, but I, I like a little bit for one or two tracks. Mm-hmm. It's nice to hear a little bit of a different take on it. Yeah, you want them to throw throw something in. Exactly, and this is very much that, as you've just said. I like the drum beat too. One thing I've said about it is you can absolutely tell right from the off on this just how much James Murphy has been influenced by Talking Heads. Oh God, yeah. So again, in the film. As you, for those who've heard the album and not seen the film, towards the end, obviously the drum beat it sort of starts turning into a bit of a break beat uh, before returning to the main rhythm. And in the film, in those parts, David Byrne just starts staggering around on stage, and I mean, it's, it looks great the way he does it. It's so so well done. Apparently, it was inspired by Fred Astaire, who did something similar in the nineteen fifty one film Royal Wedding. I mean, just from the first from the first song, you can already tell that this is someone that you want to watch. You might not necessarily like the music, but he has a watchable quality. Very much so. He is very much a showman. Yeah. What I also like, and you won't get this from listening to the record, but for these first few songs, the stage curtains are up, the house lights are up, and there's like there's like ladders and all sorts of stuff behind him because the stage is bare. It is such an interesting way, an unusual way, to start off a gig where it just looks like these guys are playing in a gymnasium at a school dance to start off with. You know what I mean? Yeah. It it gives it a kind of shambolic garage kind of vibe to it, which considering like it's very much in a big fuck-off arena, it's quite a clever way to sort of bring bring the audience in. Yeah, that's a that's a good shout actually, a really good shout. And I've just thought that's another connection between the two albums because you two on the Elevation tour in two thousand and one came on stage, played Elevation with the house lights still up. Well, there you go. Uh, okay, but yeah, I really like Psycho Killer. It's a really good version of the song. Shall we move on to next track? Yeah, let's do it. Track number two on the album, and as we always do, we do the original album release, which is only a nine-track cut-down version from what you see from the film, which is 16 songs. So from the original release, track number two is Swamp. 
This is taken from Speaking in Tongues, which, as I said, was the album released in 1983, which this tour was promoting. What do you think? I have some notes. Go on. Okay. David Byrne sounds fucking great and completely unhinged. Very Iggy Pop affectations. Which, unsurprisingly, (laughs) I was banged into. Lovely bass work from Tina Weymouth. Oh, God, yeah. God, she can play a bass. I really like this song, and I'm going to say this a lot, so apologies. It's got a really great groove to it. It, Like, it absolutely hooked me early on. And I think, like, the chorus as well, like, this is a note that I made, particularly towards the end when David Byrne gets a bit more sort of manic in it, it, it sounds kind of a bit shamanic or like a bit like those Tuvan throat singers. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, we've spoken previously when we when we did the video to Once in a Lifetime about how he's clearly taken influence from mm-hmm. religious ceremonies. We'll be talking about that again very shortly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I know exactly what you mean uh, when you talk about shamanic. Uh, yeah, it's... What I think you get, certainly on the film, and it comes across on quite a few of the tracks, is the energy that they all put into the performance. Oh, God, yeah. And yeah, it definitely comes across here. I I have to say, I'm not quite as keen as you are. I like it, okay? I like it. It's not what I think of when I think about Talking Heads, you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. It's not the style of song that immediately comes to mind. It's very... We've talked about this a lot before on on Iggy. It's very sleazy sounding, the way he sings it. I'm all right with that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, again, be clear, I'm not saying I dislike the song. I I do like it, but I don't love it, just because it's a little bit... It's a little bit disarming from everything else that's on here, I think, is is the point. The synth bass part that Tina Weymouth plays, whilst I think it's great... So she's not playing the bass in this, she's playing the synth bass. It does remind me to the opening of Chicory Tip, Son of My Father. <laughs> you were moogling, you were googling, you were free from drugs. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, Brilliant. of course I was. <laughs> a 25-year callback to an episode of a comedy panel show in the UK that most people will have forgotten about. <laughs> mm-hmm. For those who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, um, it was referring back to an episode of Nevermind the Buzzcocks where the great Jeff Green yes. was with the sort of misheard lyrics uh, around and was talking about Chicory Tip and it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Absolutely right, it was. But yeah, I like it. Yeah, okay. I, I, I have a bit more fondness for it, but you know, I think we might find that throughout this, to be honest. Well, let's see how we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should we move on to track three? Yes, Slippery People. Yeah, indeed. So again, this is another one from Speaking in Tongues. And, well, it's an evisceration of evangelical preachers and the sorts of people that manipulate people mm-hmm. into thinking that the Lord is performing miracles through them right from the start. Yeah, you get it. Like the lyrical content, as you say, it's an evisceration. It, Absolutely. It is pulling fake faith apart, really. Yeah. What about the time you're rolling over? Fall on your face. You must be having fun. Walk lightly. Think of a time. You best believe this thing is real. Put away that gun. This part is simple. Try to recognize what is in your mind. God help us. Help us to surmise. I fucking love this. 
I'm so glad to hear you say that. <laughs> I had a fucking lovely time listening to this again. As I said in the previous song, it's got a brilliant funk groove to it. I, like, it's a proper funky song. Everything is put together so well. So the keyboards, the bass, the drums work really well. The backing vocals really enhance it. It's got brilliant conga work in the middle eight. Uh, point of order, bongos, not conga. Ah, you see, I always get me congas and me bongos yeah. mixed up. Uh, it's, it's a common problem. Don't worry, a lot of men suffer from it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I have said very, very similar things. So, yeah, the backing vocals on this. So, it's Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt do the backing vocals. They sound great throughout, but this one they sound they, because they give it a real gospel inflection mm-hmm. to emphasize the theme of the song. The bongo playing from Steve Scales is great. Some awesome rhythmic synths from Jerry Harrison. Mm-hmm. But we need to talk about the rhythm section here. Oh, fuck You mentioned enough. Tina Weymouth on Swamp. Like, how tight do she and Chris France sound? I mean, they are literally husband and wife, so pretty tight. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, they are both... Unbelievable. Absolutely right, unbelievable. And, wow. Yeah. And you've got this brilliant sort of musical backing that's absolutely pitch perfect and then you've got such an idiosyncratic delivery from vote from david byrne yeah and wow we've talked about tour de forces before fuck me this is this is great it is great right from the start so this is in the actual show i think this is the uh fourth or fifth track they play yes the fifth track they play so by this time the four core members of the band are on stage, as, as I say, are Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt. And Steve Scales drums by this point to play the bongos. The first track that has everyone on stage is the next track. Are you ready to go on to the next track? Yeah, let's go. So, it's Burning Down the House. One that you're probably quite familiar with. Yeah, maybe a little bit. So, it, uh, again, is from Speaking in Tongues. It was released in July 1983 as a single. It reached number nine on the Hot 100 in the US. So, it is their biggest hit in the US and is their only top ten single. It failed to chart in the UK. Of course. What's wrong with you people? We have the excuse in that we were toddlers at this time when this came, when this came out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we didn't have access to funds to be able to buy it. No, quite. Those of you who who did, you're fucking idiots. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Yes. Go back to 1983 and have a word. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So this is the first song, as I said, to feature all performers on stage. So by this time, the touring guitarist Alex Weir, who's great, and keyboardist Bernie Worrell, who is a founding member of Parliament Funkadelic. I will come on to why that's important in a second. Well, not a bad band to, like, you know, take people from. Yeah, absolutely. So they're the last two people to take the stage. And so Tina Weymouth, in the liner notes to the best of Talking Heads album, she explained how this song came about. By saying this song started as a jam, Chris had just been to see Parliament Funkadelic in its full glory at Madison Square Garden and he was really hyped. 
During the jam, he kept yelling, burn down the house, which is a Parliament Funkadelic audience chant. And David dug the line, changing it to the finished version, burning down the house. And so I think you can, it's obvious to say, because you've literally got Bernie Worrell playing on Mm -hmm. it. But it does sound very Funkadelic, very Parliament. You know, there is a clear influence there in the rhythm Without doubt, there is a funk inflection. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, the band sounds really tight. There are some incredible synth solos from from Mm -hmm. Bernie Worrell, and that's not the last time I'm going to say that. Everyone is in complete unison. Everyone is driving it forward, but it's all about David Byrne, this. Oh, yeah. It's all about his performance. His energy, his aura comes back bursting through perhaps more than any other track on this album this is one where even if you don't see the film even if you're just listening to it you you are you can tell that as i said earlier and as you said this is a showman this is a performer this is someone that knows how to work his crowd to work his audience whether the audience is in front of him whether it's behind a camera whether it's just listening back at home yeah it, it is great stuff i love the original and this is a belter as well it is uh, there is a version of this that I don't love, and <laughs> oh dear! For listeners in the UK, you might be familiar with it. It is the version performed by Tom Jones and the Cardigans on Tom's 1999 covers album Reload. It was bafflingly popular. It reached number seven in the UK. Now, again, 16 years previously, he was like, couldn't be asked to get the fucking original into the charts. But fucking Tom Jones and the Cardigans do a fucking moribund version of it. Sound, I'm going to go out and buy that. Now, we were of age at this time. I went nowhere near this. Oh, no, I went nowhere near this because I'd heard the original and I wanted nothing to do with that shite. Absolutely right. Shit, shit, and shit. (laughs) Okay, shall we move on? Yeah, Girlfriend is Better. Indeed. So, this is the song for which David Byrne is wearing his massive suit. <laughs> so, it comes it, it comes after Genius of Love, which isn't on the album, but it's on the film. And I'm disappointed we don't get to talk about Genius of Love, because it's a great song. It's, it's a belting song. So, Genius of Love is actually uh, why I have Mark Morrison's Return of the Max stuck in my head. <laughs> Because Return of the Mac is one of the 169 songs that samples Genius of Love. There is another more famous one that does. Do you know what it is? I don't think I do. Mariah Carey's Fantasy. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's like the main riff from the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not talking about Genius of Love. That's by the Tom Tom Club. Tina Weymouth and Chris Francis' side project. It's a great song, but we ain't talking about it because it's not on the album. The reason I did want to mention it is so that interlude gave David Byrne a chance to go off stage and don his frankly enormous suit. Right, so it's also from Speaking in Tongues. This version itself was released as a single. It, this one did chart in the UK. It got to number 99. Okay, now. <laughs> Our Antipodean friends in New Zealand liked it more. They put it at number 21 in their charts. So, well done you. Yeah, well done New Zealand. So this is also the song where the lyric Stop Making Sense comes from. Indeed. 
Uh, right, so I said that I would be talking about some great Bernie Worrell synth parts again, and this is where I want to talk about some great Bernie Worrell synth parts, because those synth squeals throughout this... I mean, you've got you've got those synth squeals, and you've got some absolutely boss funk guitar work going on there. Very much so. So uh, what I've said about this is, because of that, and because of the synth, not only does it put you in mind of Parliament Funkadelic, but Morris Day and the Time. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff that Prince was going to do a year later on Purple Rain, even. Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, the, it is really channeling that kind of, you know, so you, you could even go back at like Slide the Family Stone. You know, you're talking that kind of Booty Collins style funk, really. Yes, definitely. So this is six minutes long. Uh, bear with me. You could argue it's a little bit long. But remember, this is a concert. Mm-hmm. And this is effectively the start of the encore. So you want to bring out the big guns. You want to go hard. You want to get the audience up as you start to bring them to the end of the show. So I've got absolutely no problem with this going on for six minutes because it's great. So usually I am the person who has a problem with a longer song. I'm fine. I'm having a lovely, funky time. So I'm all right with that. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, Shall we move on? Yes, let's go on to the next one. Uh, And it is a song that we have mentioned before. Indeed. That song being Once in a Lifetime. Same as it ever was. (laughs) So, this was also from Remain in Light in 1980. An album produced by Brian Eno. Indeed. Uh, Who gets a writing credit as well. He does indeed, yeah. Well, I'll come on to that in a second. The original was released as a single, as we know, because we've been through the video. It reached number 14 in the UK, number 23 in Australia, number 28 in Canada. So the UK have done well there, number 14, well done. It only reached 103 in the US. Really? Wow. exactly. This version itself, from Stop Making Sense, was released as a single. It got to 91 in the US, so a bit better. And once again, well done, New Zealand, because you took it to number 15. New Zealand absolutely adores talking hats. Indeed. Okay, uh, one more fact about Once in a Lifetime, the original Once in a Lifetime. Apparently, Robert Palmer, yes, that one, plays percussion on Once in a Lifetime. Well, there you go. (laughs) Obviously, during a break between um, singing with heavily made-up models. (laughs) Quite. Right, okay. So, Eno, as you said, gets a writing credit. Uh, Apparently, he didn't like it initially when they'd recorded it, and so the band nearly abandoned it. But David Byrne persuaded everyone to stick with it, and obviously the rest is history. Mm -hmm. As we've said before, the the lyrics were partly improvised by David Byrne, and it was based on the concept of a sort of Pentecostal sermon. You know, you may ask yourself, how did I get here? I love this song. So, again... A live version of it. I'm not going to be really criticising it that much. I'm having a lovely time. Yeah, absolutely. So is this the ultimate midlife crisis anthem? (laughs) No, I know know what you mean. Any time you see a film that's trying to depict someone experiencing a midlife crisis, this song's playing. It's not always playing, but it should be. (laughs) 
But even in the lyrics, you've got it. You know, letting the days go by, let the water hold me down into the blue again after the money's gone. It, it does sound like a warning mm-hmm. about what your life may become. Yeah, it's a fucking brilliant song. It is. We've established that in the past. And yes, I think this is a really, really good version. So this closes the main set, if you like, before the encore. Mm-hmm. And it's an obvious choice, I guess, for doing so. But there's a reason for that, because it's fucking great. Yeah, like you said, I can't really say much more about it. And whilst that that sounds like I'm probably underplaying it, but it's just brilliant. The, the only thing I think I will highlight is that I think David Byrne's performance on the live version is phenomenal. I mean, it's great in the original version, but obviously it's a live performance, so it's enhanced. It's turned up turned up to 11, and it, it's great. And he's echoing the sort of frenetic, yeah. erratic movements from the video as well, isn't he? So it, it, it's great. <laughs> I've just read my next note. I've forgotten about this. <laughs> There's one more thing I want to say. <laughs> is this a cover? Yes. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm sorry. So it's been covered 16 times. I apologise. Once in a lifetime has been covered 16 times. There is only one that I'm going to mention. And that is from 2001 by Mr. Crocodile Shoes himself. Jimmy Nail. Oh, my God. <laughs> I listened to the whole thing. Kev, it's unspeakably bad. I can't like. I think. I think like we might have to do like a video version of one of these because I'm pretty sure there will be smoke coming from my ears. <laughs> like my brain cannot comprehend Jimmy Nail doing once in a lifetime. Kev, it's so <laughs> fucking spender. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it, it's honestly, I I couldn't turn it off. <laughs> I just had to listen. No, you to could. It. <laughs> you just chose not to. <laughs> I listen to it, so you lot don't have to. <laughs> right, I think we should move on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What a day that was then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a day that was. Is the next track. So, this is a David Byrne solo track taken from his album, The Catherine Wheel. And it's one that I'd never heard before. Um, What do you think of it? Okay, so, I think it's fucking amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I was quite worried for a second there. I love the funky up-tempo opening. It's got great bass. I mean, oh my God. God, like, I feel my own brain has cheated myself in the, like, obviously I had heard this album a a while back and I completely forgotten about this song. And when I first listened to the album and then watched, watched the film and then, oh my God, like I was fucking blown away. It is brilliant. Fucking brilliant. I mean, it's played at an absolutely furious tempo. Yes, honestly, it's like everyone's on speed. <laughs> yeah. So, to talk a little bit about the song, I really like the juxtaposition between verse and chorus. The verse is quite staccato. Mm-hmm. So you've just got the rhythm section and the synths, the synths that are bouncing along underneath David Byrne's vocal. But then the chorus becomes this rapturous celebration yeah. 
uh, you know, there's a slide guitar playing in the chorus. It, I say it just gives it that that sense of affirmation, that sense of glory. It's it's a proper sort of gospel inf- yeah. inflected chorus, mm-hmm. really. A hundred percent is, yeah. I, so uh, yeah, I I was really nervous then when you because you know you do your okay. Yeah. Well, I th- I I kind of like I know I do my okay when usually I don't like something. So I decided that I was going to try and throw you a curveball because yeah, I, you rope it out me. I fucking adore this. Great, because so do I. It's brilliant. It's yeah, really it is. brilliant. Uh, and yeah, it's something I'd never heard before. So glad to have discovered it. Mm-hmm. Okay, shall we go on to life during wartime? Indeed, we should. Uh, so this was the first single from the 1979 album Fear of Music. That was their third album. Uh, it got to number 80 on the Billboard Hot 100 in September of 79. And, well, David Byrne, in a 1979 interview with Melvin Bragg on the South Bank Show. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course David Byrne was interviewed by Melvin Bragg on the South Bank Show. I mean, that's a sentence that had to come together. How much self-satisfaction was in that room? <laughs> like, don't get me wrong. I, I really like David Byrne. I like stuff Melvin Bragg's done. But, yeah, like, I wouldn't need to be told that they had had a conversation. Uh, apparently, I've met Melvin Bragg. Uh, I was only one. Um, so my mum's cousin, uh, her husband, uh, used to be a TV producer, and Melvin Bragg was at their wedding, but I was one, so I can't remember. There you go. <laughs> maybe, maybe he critiqued you. <laughs> I might send him some album class and go, listen, no, we met a long time ago. <laughs> what do you think? Better than in our time, anyway. <laughs> Actually, no. Tell, I do actually really like it all the time. <laughs> anyway, Life During Wartime, David Byrne, South Bank Show. <clears throat> he said, I just had a subject and a point of view. I thought I'd write a song about urban guerrillas from the point of view of their daily lives instead of from the point of view of their politics. And the song is quite famous for its chorus. This ain't no party. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around. Another quote from the line that opens from the Best of Album, David Byrne this time, talks about the fact that because of that line, the song became something of an anthem for the not-at-all-racist Disco Sucks movement. Oh. Aside, very racist Disco Sucks movement. Yeah. Not just racist, also homophobic. Oh, yes, of course. Sorry. Very much. Yeah, yeah. homophobic too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, <clears throat> he said, remember when they would build bonfires of Donna Summer Records? I mean, we need to talk about that because fuck you burning Donna Summer Records. She's great. I mean, <clears throat> like, seriously. <laughs> America's a fucking nut country. It is a nut country, yeah. Like, what, 20 years after McCarthy? Why people just go, well, we, we're not comfortable with this with this music that's come out. So we're gonna fu- we're gonna go to, to a to a baseball field yeah. and set fire to music that win that we don't like. Mm-hmm. Quite. Fucking anyway, wild. Fucking wild is right. Anyway, David Byrne. Remember when they Bill Bonfires had done a summer records? Well, we liked some disco music. It's called dance music now. No, it's still called disco, David. Some of it was radical, camp, silly, transcendent and disposable. So it's funny that we were sometimes seen as the flag bearers of the anti-disco movement. I'm pleased to hear him say mm. that because, yeah. Um, well, this is another one that's played at a thousand miles an hour. It's Yeah. And it does sound like a disco song, actually. There's a real... So you're talking about a funky star guitar before. 
again here, very Nile Rodgers sounding guitar. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's got a proper like funky, fun up tempo uh, rhythm to it. Definitely, and and this is something again where I have to call out the backing singers because they sound brilliant. They really emphasise that disco sound. And there's another mega synth solo from Bernie Worrell in there too. So, interestingly, I have just, um, because you know that I can't help but click on a link. So, Lynn Mabry, mm-hmm. do you know what her background is? No. She got a start in Sly and the Family Stone. She then joined P-Funk. She then became one of the original brides of Funkenstein. <laughs> And then, obviously, later joined Talking Heads for that. That's quite the CV. Yeah. <laughs> Mabry is also a business partner with Sheila E. <laughs> oh, wow. What's their business, apart from being fucking awesome? Wow. Yeah. She's fucking boss. She is boss. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I really like Life During Wartime. Really good song. Yeah, me too. What I did want to point out is the fucking amazing keyboard freakout. Well, as I said, Bernie Worrell, just fucking awesome. Yeah, and I mean, it's fucking his boss. Yeah. I had, I had a lovely time. Yep, so did I. But however, Kev, I'm afraid I have to bring us to the end of the original release. Uh, if we were going through... The uh, special edition release from 1999, we'd have another seven tracks to go through still, but alas, that's not what we do here. Unfortunately not. Uh, Although we do end on something of a high note. A cover of Al Green's Take Me to the River. So, the song itself, originally released by Al Green in October of 74 for the album Al Green Explores Your Mind. The original Talking Heads cover was on their second album, More Songs About Buildings and Food from 78. Uh, That got to 26 on the Billboard Hot 100. So what I've said here is you can tell that at this point in the show, everyone in attendance is having so much fun. Yeah, certainly when when you watch the film, everyone is enjoying the fact that they play this. Yeah, it's got a... The night's coming to an end, but we just don't want it to stop sort of feel to it. Because, again, this, is, yeah. this isn't this is the last track on the show, but it is in the encore. I think it's the penultimate in the film. So, yeah. I mean, I, we've said it before, but oh, fucking hell, Tina Weymouth and Chris France, mm-hmm. like, they are so good. And that bass line, it, it's just filth. It, it is. It's utter dirt. Yeah, it, so it, it it drives it all forward. Even during the breakdown, she's still there, just rocking that same baseline. Oh yeah, it's um, I I uh, well, I've actually seen Al Green perform "Take Me to the River." I saw him at Glastonbury. He was in the legend slot in '99, I think it was. So I saw him perform this. Uh, I am not as wedded to the music of Al Green as you are. I think this mm-hmm. is a great cover version. What do you think? So I, I've i never really been a huge fan of the Talking Heads cover. I think that this version is perfectly fine, but it doesn't blow me away. It's it's not got the, the soul, it's not got the pathos of Al Green. And unfortunately, I am absolutely wedded to the original so 
anything that anyone else does is always going to pale into insignificance for me. I, I hold my hand up to my inherent bias. No, fair enough. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. I really like it. I think it. I think it's done well. And like, if I was at the Stop Making Sense performance or one of, one of the three of them, I'd, I'm sure I would have had a lovely time. But listening, listening for the album, it doesn't doesn't blow me away. Doesn't do anything for me that the original does. Okay. So what I. I think the backing vocals, again, from Lynn Mayberry and Edda I think Tina Weymouth does some backing singing on this as well. I think they elevate it, I have to say. I like it, but I can understand where you're coming from. So would you say for you it's a bit of a disappointing end to the album? Again, I know that on the film they play Cross-Eyed and Painless next. It's it's not a disappointing... Well, it's not a great ending. Like, if you finish with Life During Wartime or What A Day That Was, um skipping out of that album it's not a bad way to end the album but like it doesn't leave me with the high feel like the second side of that album is great it just could be better with the ordering for me personally okay fair enough that said however we are done yep should we go on to do some reviews i think we should so uh, for the 2000 re-release of the album, and I say that was the full 16 tracks that you get on the film, Neil Jeffries in Empire magazine wrote that it was a bona fide classic, a perfectly measured snapshot of a widely loved and respected band playing at the height of their powers. No other band could do this. No other movie soundtrack sounds so good. Well, Neil, steady on. We'll find out about that next week. You know, don't. Don't preempt the outcome of this clash. But I think he's spot on about, you know, the, the band playing at the height of their powers. Yeah, without question. So, from the same time, Q Magazine said the album was a timely reminder of the achievements of perhaps the most underrated band of the post-punk age. From its stripped-down intro to the nine-piece finale, Stop Making Sense remains heady, stirring stuff. Are Talking Heads underrated of the post-punk age? I think then it comes back to what we talked about when we did the Top Trumps. I think their success at the time was their legacy has been greater than thank you than That's it was was at the contemporaneous time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely right. I think they are far more appreciated now than they were in that time. Okay. So I, if that's what he's getting at, yes. But yeah, I think I think now, and bearing in mind, we're still twenty odd years out from that that re-release in these reviews. So I, I think over that time, yeah, very much. Talking Heads are now very much rated and very much appreciated mm-hmm. for what they did all right i'm gonna get onto nobby in a second before we well do... yeah because i can because obviously we do our research um separately but i can see the village voice has done a review so you know <laughs> i know what's coming mm-hmm. before we do though as we always do, we'll go to all music. Michael Hastings this week, he said, even with some of the more memorable ticks edited out, Byrne is in fine voice here. Never before had he sounded warmer or more approachable, as evidenced by his soaring rendition of Once in a Lifetime. If anything, Stop Making Sense's emphasis on keyboards and rhythm is its greatest asset as well as its biggest failing. Knob tweakers Chris France and Jerry Harrison play up their parts at the expense of the treblier aspects of the performance. Still, for a generation that may have missed the band's seminal 70s work, Stop Making Sense proves to be an excellent primer. Yeah, I think that's pretty much blab on. Yeah. All right then, okay, so yes, for the Village Voice, 
Robert Criscow gave the album a B plus. <sighs> and he said, always sceptical of live albums, I know that this is their second in a four-year period that has netted only one studio job while establishing them as a world-class live band. Number one was a useful overview. Number two is a soundtrack, albeit for the finest concert film I've ever seen. Oh, nice. That repeats three songs from the overview and four from the studio job. By the video. Oh, fuck off. Now, now, I, I, I think, to be fair, his advice by the video is sound because we've both talked about how much we enjoy the film. And actually, one of my criticisms of the album is that I would like more of that performance to have been released originally. I know it has been subsequently. But I think to only put nine tracks on something that was so strong. Anyway, that said, Nobby, fuck off. <laughs> You're still an insufferable prick. Exactly. Complaining that... So, this is a band that, in the four years from the release of their first album, they released three subsequent albums. So, basically, they've released an album a year. And now he's fucking complaining that in the four years after that, they only released one studio album whilst constantly touring. Does he work for P&O Ferries nowadays? <laughs> Topical. <laughs> Uh, should we talk about the legacy? I think we should, yeah. So, the public loved it, I think it's fair to say. And so much so that people were literally dancing in the aisles when they went to see it in the cinema. In time, David Byrne said there were many screenings, film festivals and all that, many of which featured dancing in the aisles. Chris France in Rolling Stone said, I actually saw that happen and I thought, wow, this is cool. I'd never seen that before, nor since. It's been largely cited, including by Nobby just a second ago, in fact, as the best example of a concert film ever made. And to go back to that review in Empire, a snapshot of a band at their creative and their performative peak. David Byrne said, I think the film and the show showed a pop concert could be a kind of theatre. Not in the pretentious sense, but in the sense that it could be visually and even the sort of dramatically sophisticated. And yet you could still dance to it. Jonathan Demay, I knew we had captured the magic of an extraordinary band at just the right moment, but I didn't imagine it would still be around 30 years later and feeling so fresh. Fair enough. I, I, I can completely understand what David Byrne's saying there about it being a kind of theatre. Yeah, and like I think Jonathan Demay as well, that you wouldn't imagine that a concert film from 30 years ago, or, well, longer now would still have the same visceral impact but i think that's testament to both the quality of the band and that they were at the peak of peak of their powers at, at the point it was filmed and also the skill of the filmmaker yes. that managed to capture that lightning in a bottle that it is still an exciting thing to watch it is indeed. And I completely agree with something you said earlier, that it kind of set the template for not just concert films, but live performances in a way. And I'm going to go to Bono, in fact. Uh, and so what do we see David Byrne do of quite a few times through the course of this performance? He breaks the fourth wall, effectively. He, he dances straight to camera. He's performing to the camera. You look at the Zoo TV tour, Bono's doing that constantly. Bono's exaggerated his performance and his movements in such a way as to become larger than life in that performance. And I think there's a clear influence and inspiration from what 
David Byrne and the rest of the band, I have to say, because they're all having a great time, are doing on this performance. Yeah. What Start Making Sense shows other musicians was that you could do your classic kind of live performance thing, but you could do it in a way that sort of brought people into the actual live arena. It, like it's it's a weird thing that sometimes you'll watch like a a live DVD of I mean DVD, but like a live <laughs> a live recording of of a gig or something, and you very much know that you're at home. Yes. But you don't get that with Stop Making Sense. You very much feel like you are part of the concert. You are part of that gig. Mm-hmm. The David Byrne is right in front of you, giving it some, and everyone else is having having a lovely time. It, mm-hmm. It's it's a funny thing. Like the way it's put together makes you feel like you are there. And every other live performance film or whatever you want to call it that comes after this has to try and live up to that template. Definitely. On that, just to take that a little bit further, compare it to something like Song Remains the Same, Led Zeppelin, that came a few years previously, mm-hmm. which could have been quite a, a, a reasonable soundtrack album to go against this, actually. I really like Song Remains the Same. I like the film. So that's Madison Square Garden, is it? They're, they're performing in there. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a great performance, but it isn't performative mm-hmm. it's led zeppelin on stage playing the songs and yes robert plant's doing his thing jimmy page is playing electric guitar with a bow so you've got that to it fine but it isn't this it isn't a performance mm-hmm. in the way that this is so i completely agree with you this raised the bar massively for anyone that wanted to record themselves in concert well i suppose that this raised the bar and the thing that happens next that raises it further is probably Live Aid. And yes. let's face it. Queen. Queen. Freddie Mercury, like having the crowd in the palm of his hand, is that that's what takes it to the next level. That imagery. Yeah, fair point. Okay, so a few things on uh, what happened next. So... Just on the film and the, the success of it and, and the way it's now revered, just last year it was selected for preservation in the uh, US National Forum Registry by the Library of Congress. Jonathan DeMay himself, he would go on to win an Oscar for directing Silence of the Lambs. He also directed Philadelphia, which earned Tom Hanks his first Best Actor Oscar. And both of those are quite the jump from doing a concert film with yeah. Talking Heads. Uh, as for Talking Heads himself, so they released their next studio album, Little Creatures, I mentioned it earlier in 85. It's great. It was both critically and commercially acclaimed. It was actually their biggest selling record. Uh, in 86, they released True Stories. That was a soundtrack album to a comedy film made by David Byrne of the same name. Uh, and then they released Naked in 1988. Their final release, they recorded a song called Saxon Violins for the soundtrack to Vim Vender's film Until the End of the World. Yet another connection to you 2 whose song of that name was featured on Acting Baby. And then in December 1991, David Byrne decided, ah, fuck this, and he left. According to Chris France, 
The band only found out that he'd left from an article in the LA Times, and he told the same publication that, as far as we're concerned, the band never really broke up. David just decided to leave. Hmm. So the three remaining members, they continued to tour under the name The Shrunken Heads in the early 90s. In 96, they released an album called No Talking Just Head, which is a good name. <laughs> I mean, it is. <laughs> that featured vocal contributions from the likes of Debbie Harry, Michael Hutchins, Gavin Friday, Maria McKee, and even Sean Ryder. <laughs> I cannot imagine Sean Ryder. Although, actually, saying that, there is actually a similarity, I suppose, in the style of what the Mondays were doing. Certainly their earlier material to what Talking Heads were doing. So, yeah, yeah maybe... Okay. So, uh, David Byrne took legal action against uh, the group to prevent them from using the name The Heads, saying that he thought it was a pretty obvious attempt to cash in on the Talking Heads name. Well, yes, they did make up three quarters of the band, David, but, you know. <laughs> there was a reunion of sorts in 2002, so they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They came together to play Life During Wartime, Psycho Killer, and Burning Down the House at their induction. In terms of how things are currently between members, Chris France said this to the Rolling Stone. Tina and I are on great terms. Well, again, she's your wife, so you'd hope so. Jerry, I'm on good terms with. With David, I could guess you could call it email terms. I haven't actually seen him in person for quite a few years. That's not my decision, that's his. He likes to keep it to email, so whatever. I can play that game. I can answer an email. Even though we're not performing as a band, we still have things we need to talk to each other about from time to time. Yeah, clearly there is some animosity, well, from the members of the band who are not David <laughs> Byrne towards David Byrne. Yeah, I, I managed to surmise that, yeah. All right then, so just before we finish on the album, in terms of influence Talking Heads had, I've already noted LCD sound system, and there's, mm -hmm. there's other tracks I could have said again. There's so many times on this album you could say, yeah, LCD sound system clearly took some inspiration from this. But there's so many other artists, and from a you know, real diverse range of artists, have cited Talking Heads as an influence. Here's a few. Eddie Vedder, Vampire Weekend, Franz Ferdinand, Trent Reznor. Most notably, of course, Radiohead took their name from a song on True Story. So, mm -hmm. yeah, these are the people that I think have helped the legacy of Talking Heads become what it is and have meant they are no longer underrated, they are no longer undervalued, they are no longer under the radar. They are seen as real pioneers of not just new wave but actually of so much that has come since yeah definitely do you know what i have nothing more to add to that because i think you've absolutely nailed it great in that case kev please tell me what is your best song and what is your worst song from stop making sense so it was quite difficult to get to worst song because largely i like pretty much everything on it so i'm gonna come down with take me to the river I don't think it's a it's a huge galloping surprise that that's my weakest song <laughs> on it. I don't think I don't think it's particularly bad. I just I've never been a huge fan of their version of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think my favorite song on it, you know, there's a there's the Johnny Obvious songs, but as I think probably the listeners may well have picked up on when we talked about it where I was waxing lyrical about it. What a day that was is an 
absolute fucking belter. I've listened to that several times um, after listening to the, you know, listening to the album because it's great. It's just such a good song. Okay, fair enough. So two different choices for me. Um, and I'm going to do my best song first. I agree it's really tough because there's loads to choose from. Burning Down the House sounds great. I think Take Me to the River is a really good cover version, actually. I, I'm a big, big fan of it. So um, nowhere near the weakest song for me. I don't want to be Johnny Obvious, uh, like you said. And actually, there's a standout performance, there's a standout song, which means I don't need to be Johnny Obvious. Slippery People. It's a good choice. I think it's such an acerbic, such a biting song, but it's got a real funk to it. And the way it's performed is just brilliant. I love it. Uh, and as for my worst, yeah, I agree with what you said. There's not a weak track on the album, so it's a really tough choice. I've got to pick one, though. And it probably won't come as much surprise because it's the song I was least effusive about. It's Swamp. I like it, but I've got to pick one, and I just like it a bit less than everything else. So that's the reason. Fair enough. All right, then. That's us done. Flown through it. We have absolutely flown through it. Well, it's only nine tracks. We've got a bit more to chew on next week, though. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> All right, Kev. Just before we finish, please tell people how they can keep in touch with the show. So, um, if you're on the internet and you may be on Twitter, you may have come across a video where a world leader basically turns into Richard Littlejohn slash Gary Bushell. (laughs) Um, I'm talking about Vladimir Putin deciding to talk about cancel culture. Also saying that Russia has been um, great towards minorities during its um, history. I mean, I'm not sure of the etymology of the word pogrom. (laughs) It may be Russian. That's all I'm going to say. So whilst on Twitter, learning these things from such a world leader, you could go to at Clash Album and find our content there. If you like carefully curated quality content, then you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album. Or if you want to find out a another um, internet antivirus provider, you can sign us up for that at albumclash at gmail.com. Brilliant. So just to pull back the curtain, uh, when I sent Kev that clip today, I threatened that if he didn't mention it, I would never again record an episode of Album Clash and I'd delete our back catalogue. So well done. <laughs> Just fucking madness. And here's a note to um, billionaire children's authors who may have nicked all their ideas from books that came before. If Vladimir Putin is calling you out as an example of something that he advocates, fucking have a word with yourself rather than doubling down on it, yeah? Don't worry, we'll uh, speak about Graham Linehan next week. <laughs> Fucking hell. Oh, yes. (laughs) Right. Trans women and women. Oh, there you go. There you go. That is the album class official position. Right. Thanks for listening, guys. Really, really appreciate it. Hope you're enjoying it. Hope you're enjoying our quite overt politicism. (laughs) We used to try and be subtle about it, but fuck it. We've abandoned that pretense now. Exactly. Oh, great. As I always say, get in touch with the show. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. I mean, I could probably guess what you don't like, but there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
Just a reminder, Kev, tell people what you're going to be taking us through next week to conclude this clash. So next week we will conclude the clash by going through uh, U2's Rattling. Brilliant. Until then, however, I once was a man named Tim. And I am the artist formerly known as Kev. And we'll see you next time. Take care, guys. Ta-da. Ta-da.